Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning. On April 16th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And I'm uh, going to be continuing with the discussion of the war in Ukraine, which grows more horrific every day with a particular emphasis on this podcast on the poisonous influence of war propaganda, most especially Russian war propaganda, on the general intellectual climate, particularly on the Western left, and particularly as concerns the loose-knit movement known as Antifa, Now, something very ominous was just brought to my attention. There's apparently a new website out there called Antifa Watch, antifawatch.net, which has got, you know, a little uh, page, a little dossier on uh, Antifa activists from across the country, including as detailed information as possible on their whereabouts. And despite the requisite disclaimers, is obviously intended to be menacing. I was both relieved and disappointed to find that I do not have a dossier on Antifa Watch. <laughs> but some friends of mine do, and it's no laughing matter. Some good comrades of mine are uh, listed here, uh, you know, with their photos, reproductions of their social media posts, etc., And again, while I'll be just as happy not to (laughs) get a page on antifowlwatch.net, you know, I'll point out that, uh, you know, I have, um, on occasion, when warranted by circumstance, identified as or worked under the rubric of Antifa. For instance, when the notorious Jew hater and fellow traveler of neo-Nazis, Gilad Atzman, came to my neighborhood, the East Village, Back in April of 2017, for a speaking engagement, I was among those who organized a protest outside the venue, informally under the rubric of Antifa. But, uh, you know, in addition to the the people who were maintaining, you know, websites like Antifa Watch, who at least have some semblance of what Antifa actually is, there's all of, you know, the total paranoia on the political right in this country, that, you know, Antifa is some kind of, you know, secretive conspiracy which controls the government behind the scenes, like the Illuminati or the Elders of Zion. Obviously, completely out of touch with reality. It's just a part of the whole post-truth Trumpian zeitgeist, you know, that goes along with QAnon and the big lie about the 2020 election and so on. So while I certainly don't claim to be any kind of leader, I'd like to think that I'm speaking from within the broad Antifa movement, but just being me, in addition to, you know, spreading the alarm about the backlash on the right against Antifa, I have to raise some criticisms of how we may be playing into the hands of that backlash with a particular tactical error. And uh, this relates to the whole question of pronunciation. You may have noticed what I've been saying, Antifa, very pointedly, pronouncing it that way, the old school way. 
When the term first came into widespread currency, maybe about a generation ago, that was the accepted pronunciation, Antifa. Increasingly, the newfangled pronunciation of Antifa is becoming ubiquitous. And in explaining why this is a bad thing, I am going to begin by once again <clears throat> indulging my fetish for dead Englishmen by uh, reading a little quote from George Orwell, specifically from his brilliant appendix to the novel 1984, Principles of Newspeak. Newspeak, of course, being the new language which was designed by the totalitarian rulers of Oceania in his novel. So to read from uh, Principles of Newspeak, quote, the name of every organization or body of people or doctrine or country or institution or public building was invariably cut down into the familiar shape. That is, a single, easily pronounced word with the smallest number of syllables that would preserve the original derivation. In the Ministry of Truth, for example, the records department was called RecDep. The fiction department was called FICDEP. The teleprogramming department was called TELEDEP, and so on. The Ministry of Truth, of course, being essentially the Ministry of Propaganda. <clears throat> this was not done solely with the object of saving time. Even in the early decades of the 20th century, telescoped words and phrases had been one of the characteristic features of political language and it had been noticed that the tendency to use abbreviations of this kind was most marked in totalitarian countries and totalitarian organizations. Examples were such words as Nazi, Gestapo, Comintern, Imprecor, Agitprop. In the beginning, the practice had been adopted, as it were, instinctively, but in Newspeak, it was used with a conscious purpose. It was perceived that in thus abbreviating a name, one narrowed and subtly altered its meaning by cutting out most of the associations that would otherwise cling to it. The words Communist International, for instance, call up a composite picture of universal human brotherhood, red flags, barricades, Karl Marx, and the Paris Commune. The word Comintern, on the other hand, suggests merely a tightly knit organization and a well-defined body of doctrine. It refers to something almost as easily recognized and as limited in purpose as a chair or a table. Common turn is a word that can be uttered almost without taking thought, whereas communist international is a phrase over which one is obliged to linger, at least momentarily. In the same way, the associations called up by a word like mini-true are fewer and more controllable than those called up by Ministry of Truth. This accounted not only for the habit of abbreviating whenever possible, but also for the almost exaggerated care that was taken to make every word easily pronounceable. In Newspeak, euphony outweighed every consideration. Regularity of grammar was always sacrificed to it when it seemed necessary, and rightly so, since what was required, above all for political purposes, 
was short, clipped words, which could be uttered rapidly and which roused the minimum of echoes in the speaker's mind. End quote. Now, Antifa is a telescoped word for anti-fascist. But when it's pronounced Antifa, it still at least somewhat evokes anti-fascism, whereas the pronunciation Antifa further removes the word from its meaning, so it can be more easily manipulated by our enemies on the right. In contrast, if we actually went old school and called it anti-fascism, the distortions would immediately become obvious, and it would be clear that those who oppose us are pro-fascist, which in fact they are. So to paraphrase Orwell, (laughs) I will state the word anti-fascism calls up a composite picture of universal human brotherhood, red and black flags, barricades, Buenaventura de Ruti, Ernst Thalman, Sophie Scholl, and the French resistance. The word Antifa, on the other hand, suggests to the paranoid, of which there are many, a tightly knit organization and a well-defined body of doctrine bent on a sinister conspiracy to destroy Western civilization. No matter how deluded and or cynical our enemies on the right are, and they certainly are, <clears throat> it doesn't let us off the hook for a tactical error that plays into their hands. And I submit that that is what this pretentious neologistic pronunciation of Antifa is. It smacks a little bit too much of newspeak for me. Even Antifa does, but Antifa, forget about it. Not going there. So for the rest of this podcast rant, I am going to be eschewing the telescoped version of the word and saying anti-fascism or anti-fascist. Old school rules, yo. But what I actually want to discuss is a bigger problem which relates to the sinister phenomenon so blatantly in evidence these days of paradoxical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism. And it has never been so blatantly in evidence as in Putin's justifications for his war of aggression in Ukraine. And I am afraid that I see some of my comrades on the left falling for it, or at least beginning to fall for it, getting sucked into it, with this relentless hyperventilation about the Azov Battalion. All right, so uh, the Azov Battalion first emerged as a paramilitary force to fight the Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region back when the conflict began in 2014. And they quite notoriously had ugly far-right politics and adopted as their insignia the wolf's angle, or wolf trap, a symbol that was widely used by Third Reich military divisions and has since been adopted by neo-Nazi groups around the world, including the Aryan nations. 
They were quite shortly integrated into the Ukrainian National Guard, after which they began to play down their far-right politics. But their uh, symbol, which is kind of a variant on the wolf's angle, can still be seen on their website. They probably number under a thousand fighters, but they've been very involved in the defense of Mariupol, the Sea of Azov port city, which is their principal stronghold, and which uh, Putin's forces have now virtually destroyed through siege and bombardment. Now, as I pointed out, when the Azov Battalion first emerged back in 2014, any amount of neo-Nazism assuredly sucks. But it should also be kept in mind that, you know, the closer Ukraine got to the European Union, the more pressure there would be on Kyiv to kick elements such as the Azov Battalion overboard, or at least to restrain them. So once again, the Putin propagandists kind of, you know, had everything backwards. In addition to failing to recognize the fascist element within the Russian and separatist ranks, but we'll get to that later. Because since then, you know, the fascist element has really kind of taken over on the Russian side entirely and been completely embraced by what is now the Putin dictatorship. But again, we'll get to that later. It should be noted that in April of 2018, the United States Congress formally barred any provision of U.S. military aid going to the Azov Battalion a binding measure of a government spending bill. So, officially at least, none of your tax dollars are going to the Azov Battalion. Now, there was a recent headline in The Intercept, quote, Neo-Nazis not top of mind for Senate Democrats pushing weapons for Ukraine, end quote, in which some uh, Congress critters were quoted saying that they could not assure that no U.S.-provided arms were going to wind up in the hands of the Azov Battalion. And yet, that measure passed in 2018 remains law. And yeah, I would imagine that monitoring where the military aid ends up is impractical in the current atmosphere of emergency. So, thanks, Putin. Now, as a uh, recent example of um, the kind of hyperventilation I'm talking about, is the... Uh, so-called armband conspiracy, about which there has been much online hype where Putin-aligned internet sleuths are parsing photos from the massacre at Buka, the city outside Kiev, where hundreds of civilians were slain, presumably at the hands of Russian occupation forces. And they've um, fixated upon the white armbands supposedly worn on some of the bodies, which are apparently worn as a pro-Russian symbol in Ukraine. And they're saying that the fact that some of the corpses were wearing these white armbands in these rather fuzzy photos, which they have enhanced, proves that the massacre was actually carried out by the Azov Battalion which strikes me as grasping at straws, but I will leave it to the International Criminal Court to sort it out. I want to bring your attention to um, some other material that you might have missed if you've got your head 
down a pro-Putin confirmation bias bubble. Ukraine's Euromaidan Press recently ran a um, frequently asked questions type page entitled, What is Azov Regiment? Honest answers to the most common questions. One thing they point out is that the so-called Azov Battalion is now formally a regiment since it was absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard. And they go on to write, are all the members of the regiment neo-Nazis? No, they are not. There are no units created based on ideology among the Ukrainian National Guard, nor are there any among the armed forces of Ukraine. The only possible ideology of any unit of the National Guard of Ukraine is the disciplinary statute, which, among other rules, states the obligation to, quote, respect human rights, honor, and dignity, and refrain from expressions and actions which can violate human rights or humiliate honor and dignity of a person, end quote. There were some individuals with neo-Nazi background and far-right views among the people who founded the Azov Battalion in the very beginning of 2014, though not even all of the founders had such a background. Most of the soldiers with far-right background left the regiment by the end of 2014. The rest of the far-right radicals, who clearly articulated their views, were discharged in 2017 by the order of the new commanders of the regiment. As of today, there are absolutely no grounds for accusations that neo-Nazis serve in the Azov regiment. End quote. Another article in Euromaidan Press in 2019 similarly stressed that since becoming an official regiment of the Ukrainian National Guard, the Azov Battalion had been downplaying its radical right politics, and added this very important addendum, quote, A second necessary side remark is that far-right fighters can be found on both sides of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Choosing to criticize only one side for this, as has frequently happened in investigations of the far-right in Ukraine, is not a sign of great virtue, end quote. All right, now this is a really critical point. Now, you can be skeptical, as I am, okay, that the Azov Battalion or Regiment or whatever has, you know, really abandoned its um, far-right politics and been purged of all Nazi nostalgist elements. You can be skeptical of that. I'm skeptical of it, okay? But the propaganda exploitation of the Azov Battalion by those who are totally blind to the reek of fascism on the Russian side is risible. Amid all of the hyperventilation about the Azov Battalion, it fell to um, the UK tabloid The Mirror last month, March 26th, to note the killing in battle of one Vladimir Zoga, commander of the Sparta Battalion a neo-Nazi paramilitary formation fighting on the side of the Donetsk separatists. He took over from founding warlord Arsen Pavlov, a.k.a. Motorola, who was killed in 2016. Both are accused of human rights violations within the Donetsk enclave. Another story from the British press. April 7th, the London Times. Russian neo-Nazi militia advances on Kharkiv 
A band of neo-Nazi Russian mercenaries led by a commander who boasted of cutting the ears off enemy corpses has been deployed in eastern Ukraine before an expected assault. Fighters for Rusik, R-U-S-I-C-H, a force affiliated with the Kremlin-backed Wagner Group, were photographed near the Russian-Ukrainian border crossing into the Kharkiv region in Z-marked vehicles. The letter Z, of course, being taken up, which does not even exist in the Cyrillic alphabet, but has been taken up by the Russian forces as the symbol of their war in Ukraine, and as far as I'm concerned, is every bit as much of a fascist symbol in this context as the Wolfsangle. Rusek, founded in St. Petersburg in 2014 by Alexei Milkakov and Jan Petrovsky, is thought to consist of a few hundred mercenaries whose insignia is the Valknot, an old Norse symbol appropriated by white supremacists. Rusek mercenaries have also been photographed giving Nazi salutes. They fought alongside the Donbass separatists in 2015, winning a reputation for brutality. They were filmed mutilating and setting fire to corpses, and human rights groups have accused them of torturing prisoners of war. Rusek fighters were later deployed to Syria, where they were accused of crimes, including the dismemberment of a prisoner. Milkakov, one of their founders, has also posted pictures online that show him removing the ears of dead Ukrainian soldiers in Donbass and carving the kolavrat, a swastika-like symbol used on the Slav far right, into their foreheads. Milkakov boasted of these exploits in a 2020 interview in which he freely admitted to being a neo-Nazi and said he, quote, got high from the smell of burning human flesh, end quote. Like that line from Apocalypse Now. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. All that from the London Times of April 7th. We also recently noted video footage posted to Twitter of um, Denis Pusheline, who is the kid of the Donetsk People's Republic, quote-unquote, giving an award to one of his thugs, who is wearing not one, but two Nazi insignia on his sleeves. Above is a variant of the SS Totenkopf, or Death's Head, and below is a Valknot. These appear much clearer in the video, by the way, than the supposed photo of a Ukrainian soldier seen in a tweet by the official NATO Twitter account of a Sonarod or Black Sun, yet another ancient Norse and Germanic symbol which was appropriated by the Nazis which was seen or supposedly seen on the soldier's uniform, which all of the tanky internet sleuths made such a big deal of. Despite the fact that it was a blurry image and it was really quite ambiguous, in contrast to the very clear and unambiguous Nazi insignia seen in this other Twitter video footage of fighters from the Donetsk People's Republic, quote-unquote. 
Okay, now the aforementioned uh, report from the London Times about the Rusik paramilitary group also mentioned the Wagner group, or maybe it's pronounced the German way, the Wagner group, despite the fact that it's Russian. I don't know. But this is the uh, the mercenary force that the Putin regimes farms out to the highest bidding despots all around the world. Kind of like the Russian equivalent of Blackwater, only like much, much worse even than Blackwater. I'm going to again invoke the horrific massacre that occurred in the West African nation of Mali last month, March 2022, which has received shamefully little media attention, in which apparently, according to the research of Human Rights Watch, a mixed force of Malian army troops and Russian Wagner Group mercenaries occupied the town of Mora in central Mali, rounded up hundreds of unarmed civilians. And mind you, this did not happen in the context of a battle. Rather, they just went to the town's marketplace, rounded up hundreds of unarmed civilians, marched them into the bush, and summarily put 300 of them to death. Ironically, the same number that were evidently killed by Russian troops at Buka, Ukraine. Although now, they're finding more bodies at Buka, so the death toll at Buka may be even higher. And I find it tellingly ironic that the same people who are engaging in all of this whataboutery, attempting to distract from and relativize the carnage in Ukraine by saying, oh, how come nobody pays any attention to all these wars that are going on in places like Africa? These people have been doing nothing, of course, to raise the alarm about this horrific massacre carried out by Russian mercenaries in Mali. The Wagner Group has also drawn heavily from the resurgent Cossack formations, the Tsarist-era paramilitary force which has started to re-emerge in Russia in the post-Soviet era and is today quite powerful, the Kaliningrad-based Baltic Cossack district has apparently sent men to fight in Syria for the Wagner Group back during the Winter Olympics in the Russian city of Sochi in 2014. Footage emerged of um, patrolmen from the Sochi Cossacks using whips on members of Pussy Riot, the sort of punk dissident feminist group who attempted to hold a protest at the Olympics. And of course, Pussy Riot is now being banned as an organization altogether under Russia's draconian foreign agents law. And these, you know, resurgent Cossack orders are the inheritors of, you know, the same Cossacks that carried out the pogroms against the Jews and conquered the Turkic lands of Central Asia for the greater glory of the Tsars. And there are others. There is the uh, the Night Wolves, who are a sort of um, biker gang turned militia, which is fighting on the side of the Donbass separatist with extreme Russian nationalist politics. And back in April of 2020, for the first time, the U.S. government designated a white supremacist group as a terrorist organization, the so-called Russian Imperial Movement, which uh, apparently has paramilitary training camps in the area of St. Petersburg and has been linked to bomb attacks 
targeting minorities in Sweden, in league with Swedish neo-Nazis, and has, of course, sent volunteers to fight for the Donbass separatists. Back in March of 2015, three Spaniards were arrested in Spain upon their return from Ukraine, where they had apparently been fighting as part of the pro-Russian Donbass International Brigades. And uh, one of the arrested men told the Spanish newspaper El Pais, speaking of his fellow fighters, quote, half of them are communists and the other half are Nazis. We fought together, communists and Nazis alike. We all want the same, the liberation of Russia from the Ukrainian invasion, end quote. And of course, that's another example of the, you know, Nazi big lie technique, because there hadn't been any Ukrainian invasion of Russia. On the contrary, there had been a Russian invasion of Ukraine covertly back in 2014, and very, very, very overtly now, that's for sure. So these, uh, you know, Donbas People's Republics, quote-unquote, of Donetsk and Luhansk, were and are basically fascist mini-states rife with human rights abuses within their borders. Both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have documented the systemic detention and torture of civilians who oppose the rule of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Human Rights Watch reported in September 2014 that the Donbass separatists were, quote, detaining civilians on allegations of violating public order and then subjecting them to forced labor. Rebels appear to be using public order infractions as a pretext to obtain unpaid labor. In some cases, the members of these punishment brigades are beaten or subjected to other cruel and degrading treatment. In several cases, Human Rights Watch documented, Civilians were forced to work at checkpoints near front lines where they were at risk of attack by Ukrainian government forces, end quote. What? No fascism here? And the silence from the Western left about all of this has been deafening as it echoes Putin propaganda about how the Kiev regime is Nazi, quote unquote. But you know who actually does have the moral credibility to take on the Ukrainian far right? Ukrainian anti-fascists, that's who, who also oppose Putin's fascism. Back in 2019, several members of the Ukrainian anarchist group Black Banner were arrested by the Ukrainian security police after a hammer attack on a leader of... um, the Ukrainian far-right political party, right sector. Now, I just want to point out that, you know, hammer attacks are not my favorite tactic, personally. (laughs) But um, that's kind of uh, just a requisite disclaimer. It's uh, kind of ancillary to the point that I'm trying to make here. What's interesting is that practically simultaneously with these sweeps by the security police against Black Banner in Ukraine, The Russian secret police, the FSB, successor to the KGB, formerly headed by Vladimir Putin, carried out a bunch of sweeps against a Russian anarchist group by the name of 
Maradnaya Samoborona, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, People's Self-Defense, following an attempted bombing of an FSB office in the city of Arkhangelsk. And the point is, is that the Ukrainian persecuted anarchist group Black Banner and the Russian persecuted anarchist group People's Self-Defense saw themselves as in complete solidarity with each other. Unlike all too many people on the Western left, they weren't taken in by this divide-and-conquer shit. And I'll point out, since I brought them up, that right sector currently has no, count them, zero seats in the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada. And the other significant far-right party in Ukraine, Svoboda, has one seat in the Rada. Whereas the equally far-right party, United Russia, of Vladimir Putin, holds some 325 seats, or about 75% in the state Duma, the Russian parliament. So, you can just shove your hypocrisy, guys. Really. All right, I just want to bring your attention to the uh, document which has been dubbed, again, by the British press, a blueprint for genocide, which recently appeared on the Russian state media outlet Ria Novosti by commentator Timofey Sergeyev, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, <clears throat> entitled "What Russia Should Do in Ukraine," and he writes, condensing slightly but not altering any of his wording. Quote, war criminals and active Nazis should be exemplarily and exponentially punished. There must be a total lustration. Not quite sure what that means. <clears throat> Any organizations that have associated themselves with the practice of Nazism must be liquidated and banned. However, in addition to the top, a significant part of the masses, which are passive Nazis, accomplices of Nazism, are also guilty. They supported and indulged Nazi power and must face ideological repression and strict censorship. Ukraine should lose its sovereignty for at least a generation. End quote. Read it yourself. It's been widely reported in the British tabloids and also in Moscow Times, which is an independent English-language Russian news site, which is, of course, now blocked in Russia. And uh, Moscow Times links to the original article in Ria Novosti, which is, of course, in Russian. I'm going to assume that this translation is correct. So it is so ultra-cynical and perverse as to begar the imagination, justifying aggressive war, reprisals against the civil population, in a word, genocide, in the name of anti-Nazism. And when I see these staggeringly dishonest anti-Ukrainian talking points being credulously circulated 
by self-identified leftists on social media, I really worry about Western anti-fascists falling for this shit and being paradoxically co-opted by fascism. And to bring this conversation back to where I started, I'm just going to point out that there is one figure who has a page, a dossier on the uh, Antifa Watch website, who is a former friend of mine who broke ties with me and blocked me on social media because I objected to his support for alliance building with the pro-Russia pseudo-left in the paradoxical name of anti-fascist solidarity. And uh, the particular case in point that led to our falling out was in August of 2017, when here in New York City, a local group calling itself somewhat amusingly the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, the MAC, held a no-platform-for-fascism meeting and self-defense workshop at the so-called Solidarity Center on West 24th Street, which is also the headquarters of the Workers' World Party, an entity that does a good job of dressing up its ultra-reactionary and ultimately pro-fascist politics in pseudo-left garb. Another Workers' World Front group, the People's Power Assemblies, was named as a co-sponsor, as was Workers' World itself. So it seemed like MAC was being exploited in an attempted sectarian takeover of metro area Antifa. Now this uh, sort of ad hoc group, No Platform for Fascism, Uh, came together to oppose the Islamophobic March Against Sharia, which had been held uh, in Lower Manhattan's Foley Square two months earlier in June 2017. But whatever the legitimate origins of the project, and I was also out at that counter-demonstration against the March Against Sharia, whatever the legitimate origins of the project, the MAC, Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, was making a grave error by blocking with Workers' World and its satellite organizations. Now, they presumably didn't realize it, but this was a fundamental betrayal of anti-fascist principles. And I have not heard, fortunately, that there have been any further such collaborations between the MAC and Workers' World and its various front groups and splinter factions. So I'm going to assume that they have um, thought better of this ill-chosen alliance. And it has to be emphasized that Workers' World interlocks on multiple levels with the fascists that they claim to oppose. You know, I've noted again and again the open enthusiasm for genocidal Russian-backed Syrian dictator Bashar Assad among the Nazis who marched in Charlottesville that same summer, 2017, And identical enthusiasm for the war criminal Assad has been displayed again and again at anti-war demonstrations held in New York City by the Answer Coalition, another group to emerge from the workers' world orbit. And when I say enthusiasm, I mean actually marching with pictures of the fascist dictator of Syria. Bashar Assad. 
And what's more, these guys have actually met and sat down with exactly the radical right racists that they now claim to oppose. As I have mentioned before, December 2014 saw an international conference in Moscow on the, quote, right of peoples to self-determination and building a multipolar world, end quote, bringing together various of the Euro-fascist formations supported by Putin. But participants also included a delegation of American <coughs> leftists from the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC, and the International Action Center. Both these entities are spawns of Workers' World. UNAC is a recent effort to reunite the organizations in the orbit of Workers' World with ANSWER and the PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, the breakaway faction from Workers' World, which has identical politics but got the ANSWER coalition in the divorce settlement a few years back the very poorly named Party for Socialism and Liberation. I prefer to call it the Party for Fascism and Dictatorship. And uh, the International Action Center is the primary remaining, quote-unquote, anti-war <coughs> vehicle of Workers' World, also sharing that same 24th Street address. And also in attendance at that Moscow confab, along with representatives of the International Action Center and UNAC, was a delegation of white supremacists from a neo-Confederate outfit called the League of the South. So, for those of you who are not up on all of this um, sectarian left alphabet soup stuff, and sorry for getting deep into the weeds with it, but it's kind of necessary in order to be factually accurate. But the long and short of it is, is that the same pseudo-left misleaders who claim to oppose racism and Trumpism here in the United States actually sat down in Moscow with white nationalists from the neo-Confederate League of the South. And as I've also pointed out before, this Moscow confab in December 2014 on the right of peoples to self-determination and building a multipolar world was kind of the brainchild of Alexander Dugin, Putin's Rasputin, as he's called, and the ideological mastermind of his fascistic ideology of Eurasianism, as Dugin calls it. And it has since been revealed that Alexander Dugin secretly met in Rome in November of 2018 with Stephen Bannon, the far-right operative and ideologue who has played the same kind of role vis-a-vis Donald Trump that Alexander Dugan has played vis-a-vis Vladimir Putin. Which brings us to the dilemma here at home and the reckoning that this country, the United States of America, faces two years and change before the next presidential election. Earlier this month, on April 7th, on a Russian state television show, the evening with Vladimir Soloviev, one of Putin's pet pundits, Yevgeny Popov, spoke about the 2024 elections in the United States and openly called for Russian meddling, quote, 
to again help our partner Trump to become president, end quote. And I don't want to get into any arguments here about whether the uh, the Russian meddling in the 2016 election was decisive, or whether Hillary did not need any Russian help to lose, a thesis which I am entirely open to, because <laughs> I found Hillary very distasteful myself. It's all beside the point. The point is the political alignment which is both obvious and irrefutable between Putinism and Trumpism. So guys, if you're going to be spreading Russian propaganda on social media, please don't pretend that you are anti-Trump or anti-fascist. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org, where every single fact over the course of this rant is hyperlinked and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We badly need your help to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.